The following is an emergency podcast episode about the war in Ukraine. All monetization of this episode will be going to Global Givings Ukraine Crisis Relief Fund. Please consider making a donation yourself. Link in the show notes. Chris Miller, professor at Tufts and longtime friend of the China Talk podcast, on to talk about Russia, Ukraine, Putin, sanctions, and the impact on uh, the Russian nation of this war. Um, You write in a recent New York Times op-ed, there is no leader today with a better track record when it comes to using military power than Vladimir Putin of Russia. Why is he so into this? (laughs) Well, I I think, um, A, it's worked. And so if you find something that works at achieving your uh, interests, you're you're more likely to do it again. Um, B, if you look at Russia from the perspective of what types of power it has, uh, its military is by far the the strongest asset it's got, the strongest card it has to play economically, in terms of soft power, in terms of uh, influence abroad. Uh, all of these other cards are are very weak, in part because Russia has um, was just dealt a um, a bad hand to begin with, and in part because the Russian government doesn't know how to cultivate them. But Russia's got a strong military; it's made it a lot stronger over the past fifteen years, and so in some ways, it's very uh, understandable why Russia keeps turning to its military tools to achieve what it wants. Um, but from the West perspective, obviously, this isn't something we we ought to want. And it's something we've really struggled to deal with over the past 20 years. Chris, you've spent a lot of your professional life over the past 15 plus years thinking and processing Putin and how he thinks about the world and economies and power. Um, has seeing this war uh, kick off over the past few days shocked you? Is it a sort of continuation of, 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 of longstanding treads? How do you sort of diagnose what um, uh, ultimately went into his decision? So I, I found the decision to go to war not surprising. And I guess I, I was struck by the extent to which all of the um, all of U.S. intelligence on this was almost 100 percent right, which is that U.S. intelligence was saying since November that Russia was going to deploy basically the amount of troops that it deployed and forces it deployed and invade Ukraine. That's exactly what happened. Um, and that most of the expert community focused on Russia was also right. Uh, there was some debate, but I would say the mainstream view, uh, at least by uh, by four to eight weeks ago, is that we were headed towards some sort of military escalation. Um, I think what's what, what was more shocking was to everyone beyond the the people who focus on Russian security affairs um, for whom it's sort of surprising that uh, in the 21st century nations invade their neighbors, except, of course, uh, that's that's exactly how international politics works. Nations occasionally uh, invade their neighbors and uh, required a bit of updating of assumptions about how politics works. But I think what, what I was surprised by um, and what a lot of people were surprised by was uh, the way the invasion happened this week, and in particular, um, the the seemingly confused, not very well-crafted, um, justifications that the Russian government came up with for what was going on. And Putin's speeches, I thought, seemed particularly um, not simply aggressive, because he's often seemed aggressive, but also um, poorly crafted to win any sort of um, support or understanding or sympathy anywhere outside of the more nationalist wing of Russian public opinion. It wasn't a good pitch to the world stage. I remember in 2014, after Crimea, you had Sergei Lavrov with this enormous shit-eating grin on his face after they, uh, you know, came in and, and and took Crimea. And the contrast between that and, you know, what you saw, the sort of national security meeting 
of all these people looking like they were staring death in the face and having that kind of contrast of on the one hand this uh this nation looking like it's you know seeing all the angles and playing 3d chess to um you know uh 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 uh, uh, uh you know don't have the words for it to 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 what happened today as you described of just like kind of a lot of weirdness a lot of you know not particularly coordinated uh messaging some some fits and starts on the on the sort of uh actual in, in, invasion i mean is this uh elder autocratic tendencies as has past been coined on uh on on china talk what what um uh what what gives here yeah, I think the Security Council meeting on Monday is the greatest puzzle in some ways of of what we've seen over the past couple of, of weeks and months. Um, we know that the Security Council, although it was um, publicly described as a live broadcast, in fact, if you zoom in on the watches of multiple participants in the meeting, uh, it was pre-recorded, which makes it more puzzling because we had uh, every key member of the Russian political elite present, a dozen of them. Uh, and every single one of them seemed a little bit uncertain about where things were going, and some of them seemed a lot uncertain. And what I was struck by was that it, we're used to the sort of technocrats in the government, Prime Minister Mishustin, um, people around him of being um, not the most enthusiastic about Russia's foreign policy, even though they're the ones who provide the resources that that fund Russia's foreign policy. But even long time uh, people, people have made their careers in the Russian security services like Sergei Narishkin, who Putin laughed at twice um, during his, his one minute long speech, um, seemed very, very nervous, unclear, unsure about what was about to happen. Um, and it was almost as though the Kremlin wanted to show that uh, the elite was being whipped into shape um, in advance of this decision. But um, what's, what's sort of striking to me is that I'm surprised the elite had to be whipped into shape or that Putin felt like he had to whip the elite into shape because uh, my operating assumption before this was that, in fact, there was a whole lot of support for uh, Putin's leadership, at least on foreign policy questions. On domestic issues, there's debate. On the economy, it's been a little bit uh, underwhelming. But on foreign policy, Putin has made Russia great again. And the fact that there was evident um, confusion or maybe even dissent from Putin's foreign policy on the eve of the most important decision Putin will make as president, which is this war, um, seemed to me really striking and unexpected. You know, you know what it reminded me of, uh, uh, Chris, when we talked probably two years ago now about your book, Putinomics, um, you had a riff in there about how Putin really gets a kick out of like showing up at factories and like sitting down and yelling at the CEOs. And, you know, from that, I, I spent a lot of time on YouTube watching this. And it, it kind of reminds me of an episode of this, like, network TV show in America where, oh, Undercover Boss, where, like, the CEO of McDonald's or whatever goes into a local chain and then sees that, like, the manager isn't being nice to the frontline employees. And then at the end of the show, there's, like, a big reveal where the manager, like, takes off his mustache and says, oh, I'm going to fire you because you're, like, really crappy at running a, you know, a, a cook line or, you know, running a running a, a shoe store or whatever. And it kind of makes sense when you're like, OK, you're doing it because you're doing it on behalf of the, uh, you know, from, from Putin's perspective, it kind of makes sense if you're doing it like on behalf of the sort of screwed over workers in the steel factory who are like mistreated and, you know, not getting uh, uh, not getting paid when their hands get cut off or whatever. 
it's a way weirder dynamic when this is your team who you've had 20 years to pick um, and you're about to go to war with them um to 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 feel like you don't have to dress you you have to dress them down and then you dress them down in public and then you record it and then five hours later or whatever you're like oh yeah that let's have the whole world watch it it's just a it's just a really odd series of 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 decisions yeah no completely agree and and before this week uh, we'd been talking a little bit about putin becoming more isolated during covid um, during the pandemic, he, by all accounts, has uh, has uh, enforced a very rigid regime of quarantine, making even cabinet ministers quarantine for uh, multiple days before seeing him, regardless of their test results, regardless of vaccination status. Um, and and this is a bit of a puzzle because there's no evident reason why someone like Putin, who is, uh, according to Russian media, vaccinated uh, and according to the Kremlin in good health, uh, to be nearly as afraid as he is of COVID. I mean, he's he's sort of a as afraid as everyone was in like March 2020, except it's it's you know almost March 2022, um, and yet this this does seem to have really affected him on a uh, sort of personal um, level. It's it's cut off his access to information, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I, I think this has uh, has impacted um, him on a personal level in a way that we didn't fully understand until the events of this week. Yeah, you know what you know what else the the speech made me think of is like whenever people start talking a lot about how everyone else is on drugs like it wouldn't surprise anyone right no doctor is gonna when putin asks for sleeping pills no doctor is gonna say oh maybe you should cut back a little bit and you know there's a there's a there's a real like this this is like a real psychological thing where like you know you have elliot spitzer who's like the the anti-prostitution crusader all of a sudden is like you know spending half of his salary hiring hiring prostitutes this guy's starting a world war apparently because of because an entire nation is ruled by drug addicts, like it would not surprise me at all if this is the sort of if if you know we end up getting this uh, reveal, you know, five ten years if if the sort of Sergey Lavrov like redemption tour memoirs, uh, if he outlives Putin, ends up having having that little detail in there. Well, I, I can't wait for the Sergey Lavrov memoirs. I hope they're written from the Hague. Um, but I, you know, I think that there's a. There's, there's some evidence that Stalin, in, the, in his final um, months or years, was was on some pretty heavy. I, forget, I, think, I think opiates, if I recall correctly, but I'll, I'll have to check that. Don't quote me on that one. And then Brezhnev, of course, was somewhat famously addicted to um, to sedatives in his final uh, couple of years as well. So uh, this is the this is the danger when you have rulers for life or for almost life is that the final years never look too good. Chris, let's talk a little bit about the domestic reaction in Russia. So I'm struck by if you compare to 2014. When Russia annexed Crimea, there was an extraordinary outpouring of support um, for the government as well as for the the annexation itself. And uh, people who were previously part of the opposition um, began expressing pride in the government. People who were totally apolitical uh, began um, putting uh, flags on their cars, things like that. Um, the Russian society was unified behind the annexation of Crimea, except for a couple percentage points of the population. Uh, and today, this looks very, very different. Um, I know personally... Uh, a, a number of uh, Russians who have uh, posted on social media that they're opposed to the war, which was something that was a really fringe, really a fringe thing to do in 2014. Uh, and now it's not a fringe thing to do. Uh, and so we're not going to get any sort of credible polling data on this um, anytime soon, but it does seem like the popular, there's certainly no wave of popular enthusiasm. And I think the popular skepticism just anecdotally seems to be substantially more uh, than we saw in, in 2014. 
Um, what what this dynamic reminded me of is that absolutely incredible chapter in uh, William Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which if everyone hasn't read, they should go out and read. An American journalist who spent the 30s in Germany and then the spent the, the sort of 10 years after the war reading uh, Nazi documents and sort of the book blended his sort of journalistic accounts of watching all these Hitler speeches with um, uh, the sort of archival, like what was really happening. And yes, like there, there are points at which it's been superseded by uh, 75 years of, of, of historiography, but the sort of atmospherics that he's able to provide as a firsthand witness and as a, and, and, and kind of just his skill as a writer is really, um, is, is really worth folks um, putting on their book on their list the next time they, they, they want to, dig into a thousand pages of, of Nazi history. But um, coming back to your point in particular, Chris, he, he as Russia, as, as Nazi Germany invaded Poland, um, he contrasted the sort of mood on the street in Berlin with what happened during Anschluss, what happened during um, taking the Ruhr back, where in those, um, uh, after those actions by Hitler, there was rejoicing. People felt incredible, yeah. like we were back in, back in the game again and 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 sort of germany was on the march but but people recognized at the time that poland was different and that it was sort of there was no justification and that it was uh, uh, a a sort of a real a real horrible thing to do to the uh uh to to to, to do an independent nation and um uh the the kind of delta um between uh 2014 and uh and today in russia has 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 some echoes of 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 that I think. Yeah, no, that that sounds right, and I think also, and this might also be a comparison point to to, to 1939, but I don't like the comparison in general. But in, in this particular yeah. instance, um, <laughs> is uh is you know I think Crimea annexing Crimea was easy for the Russians. The war in Georgia in 2008 was easy for Russia. The war in Eastern Ukraine in 2014 was easy for Russia. Uh, this is not looking like it's going to end up as a cost-free endeavor for Russia in terms of lives or in terms of uh, money it's going to cost. And so I think part of the Russian reaction is is already realizing this is going to be a long, messy, costly fight. Um, speaking of costs, uh, you've seen the West become much more willing in, you know, even the past 48 hours to increase both the, the sort of economic as well as military costs when it comes to uh, sort of Sending in more, 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 more trucks and planes for um, uh, armaments and and whatnot. But as the economic historian, Chris, I'm going to stick to the sanction side for you. Um, what what do you what what has struck you watching? Uh, but before we get into the impacts, what has struck you watching the the response in uh, in in European capitals and 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 Washington and actually around the world to um uh, uh to, to to sending a message to Putin economically? Yeah, I think the striking thing from where we stand right now um, a couple days into the war is that things that would have been inconceivable in European politics in particular are now becoming mainstream and they've become mainstream in 72 hours. Like And Germany, I think, is the greatest sign of the shift. The Germans just announced this morning they're sending arms to Ukraine. Um, a couple of days ago, it was helmets. Um, so that's a pretty big shift uh, in terms of German public opinion. And I think the European sanctions response, uh, is, has been just as dramatic in its shift. There's discussion today of cutting Russia out of the SWIFT interbank payment system, um, which would have just been unthinkable a couple of days ago in, 
in Europe, and now it's 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 controversial not to support it for European politicians. And in the U.S., I think we've seen a bit less of a drastic shift, but we've seen a big move um, over the past couple of days in the U.S. too. And I think that move is not done. I think that train is going to keep chugging along uh, as long as the fighting uh, continues, and we're going to see a, another couple of rounds of sanctions that are going to further cut Russia off from the rest of the world economy. So, what's the how how does how does this impact, and and what's the sort of timeline where um uh where where folks really start feeling the pain? Well, I think the big two big questions. One is, do we get to full blocking sanctions on the entire banking system? So thus far, the U.S. has has imposed sanctions on a number of big Russian banks, but it's only imposed the toughest sanctions on uh, one Russian bank or one big Russian bank, at least VTB, the second largest bank in Russia. Um, so this is like Iran-style sanctions, but only on one bank. And the U.S. could get to Iran-style sanctions on the entire Russian banking system, which would uh, be a real mess for Russia because it would be uh, very, very difficult to make international payments uh, and to conduct trade. So that, that's one question. Second question is, do we get to energy um, sanctions? Right now, Russia makes around half, depending on the year, of its foreign exchange earnings by selling predominantly oil, but also gas abroad. Uh, and the Biden administration and some European allies as well are very sensitive to energy prices. And so the calculus the Biden administration is making right now, they won't tell you this, but this is what they're making is um, their willingness to tolerate higher gas prices for the midterms versus their desire to punish Russia. Um, and we've already seen it move because gas prices are higher than they would have been uh, had there been no com confrontation with Russia. And I think we're going to see that move further in terms of willingness to tolerate higher gas prices because looking weak and looking inept uh, is not going to be a popular thing to look before the midterms. Can we talk about the Republicans for a second? What the yeah, fuck? That sounds great. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think actually that um, the past four days, um, the the sort of Trump isolationist wing has either gone very quiet or rapidly changed views in most cases. Um, you know, you look at Josh Hawley of Missouri. Um, a, a one week ago, he was advocating cutting a deal with Russia. Um, now he's criticizing the Biden team for being too weak. Um, you can, you can question that, uh, his right to criticize, but I think that, that, um, shift is, is pretty notable. And I, I think that's, that's actually the interesting thing is that it's fine to be an isolationist until America looks weak and then all the isolationists want to be strong. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, but I think the exceptions are exceptions and the rule has been a big shift, uh, since the invasion started. Uh, it'll be, I, I haven't seen a ton of polling. But it'll be really interesting to the extent to which that actually is reflected in the electorate, because, you know, with with Trump, you had a dose of high profile, consistent isolationism as a sort of legitimized thing. Right. And that hasn't been something that you've seen in the U.S. for a really long time, you know, outside of like the like Rand, Rand Paul never had, you know, one one hundredth of the platform that um, that that Trump did in the years that he um, uh, uh that, that, that he was in power. So the extent to which that sort of continues to resonate is going to be is going to be really interesting. I remember there were a few polls before the war started where there, where you had this very big generational gap with younger um, uh, younger American Americans being much more kind of comfortable saying, oh, we just we just want to um, we want to stay out of this. This isn't our business. But sort of like I, I wondered the extent to which actually watching like a like a freedom loving people lose their, um, uh, you know, lo lose that will, will change folks because the sort of the, 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 the dynamics of this versus opposing the war in Iraq 
or wanting to get out of Afghanistan are very different, right? In terms of, um, you know, say you're a, uh, you know, say you're a, I don't, I don't know how to carry it. You know, the, 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 the dynamics of, of this are very, the dynamics of Putin invading a country are very different than sort of wanting to stay out of uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Se. Yeah, I mean, AOC talking about the military industrial complex doesn't look very impressive this morning. Yeah, I think that's, and I think you know, on the on the Trump coalition and and foreign policy, you know, you know, Trump obviously was a sort of not not consistent in what he said, yeah. and but the Trump coalition, it doesn't seem, you know, calling that isolationist, I think, mischaracterizes um, what was going on. Um, and if you look at the people who were in the Trump administration, were not isolationists. The Pompeos. All of Trump's national security advisors, different characters, all of them, but none of them were isolationists. So I, 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 I worry that isolationist is not the right, uh, yeah. right characterization for the mood we've been seeing. I think, um, I, I think that that doesn't really get at the policies that either the Trump team or a lot of the Republicans actually are supporting. Yeah, but then I mean, the, you get very quickly into the sort of like elite real America divide there, right? Because I think I think there I think there is a real delta emerging in America between. You know, anyone I mean, this sort of the bar was lowered for uh, uh, for 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 Trump appointees. Right. But like anyone um, who could work, who could, you know, somewhat credibly work in a in an administration is a different type of person than, uh, you know, your median voter. Right. Uh, Or even, you know, 30 percent of your median voters. And I don't think you could find your 30 percent of your your 30 percent of America uh, in the Cold War for sure. Uh, who would look at something like this and 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 kind of want to you know roll their eyes and uh, um, go back to playing Elden Ring? Um, so that's a uh, it's 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 something that I'm going to be watching uh, really really closely how how American public opinion responds to this. Um, we were on sanctions. We we got off sanctions. Um, uh, <laughs> back to sanctions. Um, how, if at all, does this change uh, calculus in the Kremlin? I don't think it changes calculus at all in the short term. Um, if we get to Iran-style sanctions very soon, uh, then it might start to change calculations. I don't think we're going to get to Iran-style sanctions soon enough, though, to really impact the the conventional military fight in Ukraine. Um, though I think at this point we ought to, um, but but my prediction is that we won't. Um, but I think uh, over the next six months, especially if we do, as I expect, do a couple more rounds of sanctions and intensify them further, uh, the price is going to begin to become pretty clear. And if, if you combine the story of a higher price with a lack of domestic um, l- lack of domestic enthusiasm, I think we can definitely say, and maybe even lack of domestic support, I think we'll have to wait and see how the Russian populace responds. But you know, that combination, high cost, low low enthusiasm is not a popular one yeah um not a good one for for putin um so i don't think we should expect any sort of policy changes in the, in the short term but i i do think he has increased the likelihood that he is no longer russian president in 2025 uh for reasons other than his own death um i used to think his his probability of being in power was only limited by life expectancy but now i i wonder whether he's opened the door to um some more domestic pressure than he's used to so so my kind of mental model of she is that Fundamentally, he cares like he deeply cares about things besides taking Taiwan and besides sort of like, you know, expanding national greatness as defined through territorial conquest. And, um, you know, when 
you know, he's out there trying to reform the party and like really wants it. You know, there's a there's a part of him which is very passionate about uh, common prosperity and wants to bring toilets to rural China and, um, you know, wants to make sure that the party is run in a clean and, rel- you know, marginally less corrupt manner than when it was when he came into office and um, has some sense that like the well-being of the Chinese people is something that he is responsible for. And, you know, when I think about which is which is why, like the the which is why I'm I'm, I'm like still a little like less hopeful than I was before, but but still like relatively hopeful that we're not going to we're not going to see this uh, th- this sort of development happen in Taiwan anytime soon. When you look at Putin, like I, 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 as you said, Chris, he doesn't have many other places to hang his hat on when he's thinking about. You know what he, well, you know the the meaning of his existence and the meaning of Russia as a um uh, as a, the Russian Federation as like a entity. And um, you know, once you start to define yourself only in terms of uh, what you can uh, what you can achieve from a like you know Tsarists like colonial mindset, then um, these sorts of things start to matter less, right? Um, doing the uh, br- bringing on the type of leverage. And bringing on the type of leverage that economic sanctions can um, can 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 bring, because if all you're focused on is is whether or not you can take X city and Y city and have uh, Ukrainians, you know, turn off Ukrainians, Ukraine's internet so they can stop making memes with you is is just a a fundamentally different way of looking at the world. So I'm I'm with you, Chris, and I think the the chances of, you know, the coup or whatever happening are 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 higher because that's probably what you're hoping for. I think that's like probably more the likely the the more likely scenario of that being the way in which sort of sanctions develop um and 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 have an impact than than Putin seeing, oh wow, this is actually really scary. Or maybe I'm maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Maybe he maybe if he really sees a threat to his um uh you know to his popular standing and 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 and, and social stability he'll consider um uh, uh consider pulling back you know there's this um there's this extraordinary anecdote um from i believe 1944 of one of the yugoslav communist leaders visiting moscow um and he meets with stalin and stalin takes him on the kremlin for big dinner uh and and shows him a map of the world um and the the parts that are the control of the soviet union are are colored in red um, and Stalin is at this time thinking about what he wants the post-war map to look like. And he's, we know from other sources, he's had a couple of conversations with, uh, Soviet foreign policy leaders in the foreign ministry and elsewhere about what the map ought to look like, which the Japanese islands he ought to take, um, and what, the, where the border should be in the Baltic. And so Stalin is in 1944 thinking of the world in terms of redrawing the map. Um, and at that point he was, I think, you know, literally drunk on power because he had defeated the Nazis or was in the process of defeating the Nazis, marching to Berlin. Everyone knew he was going to win. Um, and it became impossible to draw boundaries that were um, that were in a, in a position that would leave him um, better, like satiated, but not uh, not threatening his neighbors. And instead, he wanted to draw the boundaries all the way through the center of uh, the center of Europe. Um, and I, I think that's kind of where, where Putin is right now. He's gotten a lot of what he wanted the past couple of years. He's faced resistance, but not very successful resistance. Um, he was able to add Crimea back to the Russian Empire. He's able to basically put Belarus under his control. He sent troops to Kazakhstan uh, in early January with uh, no difficulty whatsoever. And so I, I do think this 
you know, we shouldn't be surprised. Oh, I was surprised. Everyone was surprised. We shouldn't have been surprised when Putin made his big speech on, um, on on Monday, citing you know ancient treaties from the from from Imperial Russian history. I had to you know, make sure I was remembering correctly which dates uh, applied to which treaties <laughs> and which czar had signed which ones. They were so back so far back in time. And I, th I think that is kind of the mindset: is well, we're going to redraw the map. Let's uh, let's have it a big redrawing and make sure we have enough territory. Um, so I, I I do think that's kind of the mindset. Uh, right now, which is a you know dangerous mindset, as you say, to be in, um, because it does expose you to uh, to biting off more than you can chew. Yeah. It, it also kind of like if you've been doing one job for twenty years and you've you know tried ten projects and you know you're oh I'm going to make a new Silicon Valley project fails. If you're oh I'm going to like modernize the governance of our of our um, uh, energy companies that fails. If, yo, I'm going to like reform our sort of fiscal balance and like fix like the weird pension stuff we have going on, if that fails too. And the only thing, the only button when you press and it works is invading stuff, then it, um, uh, it, it, it makes sense that this is sort of how he's conditioned his mind to, to, uh, to think. Chris, um, uh, uh, Camille, who I had you chatting with uh, a few a few months ago, is, has now um, become a Twitter superstar. One of his um, uh, 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 threads was about the sort of balance between the Kremlin, uh, state security, and 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 the military, and the sort of like trilemma that exists as uh, as you start wars, because then you kind of create generals. Which, if they do a good job, well, if they lose, then like that's terrible. But if they do a good job, then all of a sudden you sort of have a new sort of popular person and center of and, and center of power. I'm curious how that model relates to what um uh what we we've currently seeing and what we may see play out over the uh, uh coming months. Yeah, it's interesting. I I I read Camille's um post on on that, and, and I think I would have a different view, which is that over the past. 150 years and probably longer than that the russian military has very rarely been a major political actor except during civil wars when militaries are just by definition political actors um, but during the soviet period you know you had people like zhukov but but actually you know the story was that he he didn't end up becoming a political actor uh, in any sort of serious sense and it was easy to sideline him um in night from 1989 to 1991 when the soviet union was uh teetering on the on the precipice of collapse the military didn't play any sort of meaningful role whatsoever there was a coup but it was led by the the kgb uh the military was divided and confused and and didn't play a role and in in 1993 when yeltsin shelled parliament um the military sort of followed his orders but unenthusiastically and no one said the military was was driving that in any sense so i i i sort of end up thinking that actually the military is a lot less powerful than one might think for a state with a vast military and a vast military industrial complex relative to the security services which have punched above their weight uh since you know i think the the late czarist empire uh and that's that to me is the really interesting question is how have the security services been institutionalized such that They've been able to survive repeated shocks, the purges, the war, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and still stay as powerful as they are um, in, in Soviet politics. Even when you have the party running thing in Russian politics, even when you have party running thing in Soviet politics, it was still, um, in a lot of cases, the security services that were actually calling um, a lot of the key shots. Um, and so that, I think, is the, the, the puzzle that I come away with, uh, less than the military. So, Chris, you're writing a book about chips. And um, we've seen an interesting 
dynamic of uh, TSMC saying that they're going to uh, stop selling stuff to uh, Russia, which is like a somewhat tricky thing to uh, to pull off on the one hand. You know, they've they've made the argument and Intel's made the argument as well that like, look, we don't really know where our end users, you know, wh- where these chips go. These are commodities. And like when it, when you have the stories of like, oh, an Intel processor being used in Xinjiang to like process faces of of, of Uyghurs or whatever, that's their sort of response. So um, I- I'm curious just sort of how you see this um, this developing, because like if chips actually don't get to china like that excuse me if chips actually don't get to russia that's like a you know uh, that that's a really dramatic thing and like people are like harvesting old motherboards and stuff i don't even know what happens in that space but it seems hard for me to imagine that um that it seems hard for me to imagine like this this really having a dramatic effect i i I think a couple of thoughts one is that I, i think this will be enforced most strictly as it relates to goods that are most directly linked to the military industrial complex um, and we already have examples of 2014 when the U.S. tightened export control rules of of severe delays to the Russian space program um, caused by problems with microelectronics. So I, I think this will have an impact um, in spheres that are adjacent to um, the military. The, a lot of the export controls focus as well on aviation. Um, and aviation obviously is you know among the most complicated manufacturing with a million different components per plane. And so you don't need to successfully restrict that many components to cause a big problem for aviation manufacturing. Um, so there too, I think that'll have an impact. But, but broadly, I think you're probably right that uh, it is tricky to enforce when you do have these complicated supply chains and it's hard to track where everything goes. So it's um, 60% of Russian uh, ICT imports are Chinese. Uh, that as a percentage of Chinese exports is small. Um, but very quickly... Uh, the U.S. is going to start looking at which Chinese firms are still continuing to export into into Russia. And, um, you know, in the sort of the the, the sort of political economy decision making of both the firms as well as Beijing are going to be really, really interesting to follow on this because she's probably pretty pissed that um, that Russia went in and, and invaded Ukraine and put him and put him in and China in such an awkward spot internationally. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, do they really want to entirely throw Russia under the bus? And is sort of being sneaky about those uh, those sorts of exports to Russia worth risking a dramatic escalation of what Biden has done so far when it comes to um, when it comes for export control restrictions and sanctions on uh, on the on the Chinese uh, technology industrial complex, because, you know, there have been over the past uh, uh, year and change, there have been a handful of sanctions on on uh, on firms. You know, SMIC is now on the um, uh, on on the entity list, but it hasn't had the same dramatic treatment that you've seen in the Trump administration and, and in Huawei. If Beijing is trying to sort of thread the needle and not give the folks in Washington who want to escalate on China more ammunition, they're going to have to be really careful um, it, when it comes to being, you know, really sneaky about getting stuff across across the border or just stopping, delaying orders, sending, uh, you know, restricting the type of um, exports that uh, are going to be going into Russia such that they aren't those types of, you know, fancy aviation, spe- fancy specialized aviation ships um, that Russia is probably really focused on getting at the moment. Um, 
that's a that's a that's a story I'm 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 really focused on and and going to be watching closely in the months ahead. Yeah, and I guess one question to ask there is uh, of these companies in China that are selling to Russia, how important is Russia a customer yeah. to them? Um, because I bet in many cases the answer is not all that important. In which case, the, yes, I think you're um, I think you're absolutely right, and I think there is a really interesting research project to be done, um, which I'm sure is happening inside inside governments around the world, but also as as open source uh, researchers kind of going down the um, the list of uh, uh, Chinese firms and reading some, uh, you know, Chinese 10Ks and figuring out exactly where the um, uh, exactly which firms, because I'm sure uh, I'm sure, you know, if you look at this sort of macro OECD data, um, it's not a it's not a huge percentage of experts, but th there are certainly going to be companies um, for whom this is a this is a large and important market. And, um, you know, when it's a when it's that company in your region and, you know, maybe you're getting sort of mixed signals from Beijing, you might make a different call than a larger firm like a SMIC, which has, um, uh, you know, which has much more to um, much more to lose by um, uh, by sort of going all in with um uh uh with with, with supplying uh russia what it wants in the uh coming months and years closing thoughts well i'm looking forward to listening to your other episodes on what china is thinking about the current crisis i, I have no no intelligent thoughts right now i'm, I'm i was surprised by the confidence with, with with which you seem to think that she and the chinese leadership were unhappy about the war um i'm less certain i, I mean It's what's my what's my I mean, I, I just. I don't think. I, I think this is too much chaos. I don't think she is a chaos fan. I think he likes things to be controlled. He likes sort of knowing what's happening, seeing the steps and the sort of the sort of um, the the wide range of outcomes, which has now been opened up by this war happening is really concerning for him. And I think, you know, from a from a from a longer term perspective, like the EU and the rest of the world really is now put on notice that autocrats are bad news. And um the I, I think a lot of what you're seeing in coalescing around in, in European politics around um the sort of really harsh actions which 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 basically everyone is on board with now is going to bleed over into them rethinking their relationship and dependencies on China. And, you know, that's probably not going to manifest um, quite as uh, aggressively or, um, or or dramatically as it has, as, as it's currently happening in the, in the Russia context. But, um, you know, thinking about stuff like the TTC and the quad and, uh, and, and, and so an alignment on, um, uh, on stuff like export controls, uh, watching a war happen uh, by one country invading another, I think is concentrating minds um at the, the 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 possibility that the same thing could happen in um in, in east asia and that fact alone is um is probably going to really reshape the um the sort of global landscape which which china was confronting which already was trending in this direction of uh sort of focus mm -hmm. and cognizance on the um uh, on the threat and you know coming back to to our to our to our conversation earlier about the um uh, the, the the dynamic in america right um you know, you saw like a uh, a pretty strong consensus about doing something on China, but it was like it was it was it was widespread. But I think the sort of output that you've seen in terms of 
uh, in, in terms of, you know, military form, legislation, uh, uh, military spending has been, you know, could, could be a lot bigger. And this is the sort of thing which I think is going to absolutely rebound um, into uh, America focusing, uh, focusing more on these sorts of competitiveness things, which people have been speaking about in, um, in the abstract. And, you know, you've seen USICA, you've seen the Competes Act, but there's way more that is potentially on the table, um, both from a sort of uh, domestic economic uh, competitiveness angle, as well as a, as well as a sort of military um, military angle, and 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 this is the sort of thing which is really gonna um, uh, wake fo- wake folks up and and, um, uh, and 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 turn sort of all she's fears right about the um, uh, 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 about the the U.S. sort of focusing on focusing on on uh, on this issue to the um, uh, Lost the thread in the last sentence. This is this is the sort of like that sort of response. It, I think she had already baked into his mind that you, the U.S. was going to get there at some point. Um, but that point is coming a lot sooner. Well, but but two things. First, I don't think it was necessarily inevitable, but I, now I think it is, and I think that point is coming a lot sooner. And the res- and the sort of response is going to end up being um, pretty dramatically amplified by um, uh, by seeing what's happening in Europe. So maybe that's r- wishful thinking on my end um, that this isn't just sort of a uh, a flash in the pan moment and people are watching things uh, that are often awful and happening in CNN. And, you know, if this war ends in four days and things are quiet, um, we, we may have, we may be having a very different, um, a very different conversation about what, um, what the West response is going to be. But I think, you know, this is uh, the, the, the Ukrainian resistance, which I think we, we, we shouldn't, you know, um, overlook at all is, is, is a, is a real, um, uh, I think is going to be a really decisive thing. Uh, and how the West uh, and the world responds to it, because the conversations, if this was a fait accompli, are very different from a sort of policymaking perspective. And the tools on the table, um, if you're in uh, if you're in Brussels or, or in Washington, are, are very different. If you can't, you know, send uh, uh, send arms and um, sort of drain the uh, uh, you know drain Russia by by by, by forcing them to fight, and, and and as well the kind of moral. Um, uh, uh, example that the uh, that the Ukrainians currently are, are 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 showing the world that like look at us literally dying for freedom here and if you guys can't like get your act together and you know pass that like Pentagon reform and like buy some more freaking like water drones instead of the fiftieth destroyer which like everyone knows no one needs um because of some like weird parochial interest um you know what what are you even doing in power I think that sort of thing. Um, the longer this, um, the longer this is, uh, the longer this potentially goes on, uh, the more powerful that um, that goes. So even you know, even if the war ends up ending in two days, um, the fact that there was this, um, uh, you know, there there there, there was sort of real um, real, real resistance is something that I think is really capturing the world's uh, the world's attention. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and I, and I I struggle to see how the war ends in two days, even if the conventional fight does the unconventional fight won't. So I think that dynamic will 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 definitely play out. I I guess the other takeaway is that if if Xi Jinping ever starts making speeches about Emperor Qianlong or the great conquests of the Qing Empire, run for the hills. Um because that's a very bad sign when uh when when dictators have been in power for too long start dreaming about redrawing borders and their favorite old emperors. Yeah. I mean he kinda like he does it a little bit, but like it's not like he's on drugs at the same time. So we could for that we, we have that we have that to think. <laughs> Chris Miller, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thanks, Jared. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-cast. A-cast. recommends. <laughs>